0: Acts 2, 22 through 41 is our scripture this afternoon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus is everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls.
1: Good afternoon, Risen Hope, it's good to be together. Let me just pray for us briefly. God, be glorified by the worship of your people, by the reading of your word, by the announcements that are made, and now through the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Rudolf Boltmann was a prominent theologian in the 20th century. He was a smart guy who lived in a modern world with modern technology but he had a problem with Biblical Christianity. His problem was that it was a mythological world, a make-believe world. We live in a world with electric lights, wireless technology, modern medicine, and because of that, you can't believe in a world of spirits and miracles and resurrection from the dead. You can believe it for our, we can believe it for ourselves, but then to quote Boltmann, but to expect others to do so is to make the Christian faith unintelligible and unacceptable to the modern world. What he's saying is that you can believe the virgin birth, miracles, and the resurrection, if that floats your boat, but those are New Testament myths that are unintelligible and unacceptable to the modern world. I'm going to pause there. We need to dismiss the 4th through 6th graders. I forgot about we forgot about that. So if you're 4th through 6th grade, Victor... Co will be teaching, so he'll meet you back there, 4th through 6th graders. So that's Boltmann's perspective. It's unintelligible and unacceptable to modern people. If you're new to us, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, that ancient document that outlines our faith. We've looked at God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We've looked at the humiliation of Jesus Christ, The Son of God who became a man suffered, was crucified, buried for for our sins. And now we'll look at the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Let me read the next section from the Apostles' Creed. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Today, we'll look at the first three parts of the exaltation, and then we'll Talk about the return of Christ next week. It matters whether or not, does it really matter, though, whether or not Jesus rose, he ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Boltman would say, no. Well, it can be true for you, but it doesn't really matter because it didn't happen. And in our culture, there's so many different religions, so many different beliefs. And our culture says, if it's true for you, that doesn't make it true for everyone. What we're going to learn from our text, from Acts 2, is that it is true whether we believe it or not, and it absolutely matters whether these things happen. The resurrection, the ascension, the session of Jesus, session meaning seated at the right hand, prove that he is both Lord and Christ, and that demands a response. So the resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus Prove that he is both Lord and Christ, and that demands a response. Before we go any further, we need to remember who we're talking about. When we, this is the humiliation and exaltation of no mere man. Long before Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he is the preexistent Son of God. That means he is the Almighty One who is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father and the Spirit, one God, three persons. Second person of the Trinity. In his humiliation, the Son of God voluntarily took on a human nature. It's this addition by subtraction that we heard about from Joel a couple weeks ago. So this means that the independent God who has no needs became a human being who needed food, clothing, shelter. The infinite God who can't be contained by anything became a human being who was limited by space and time. The immortal God who cannot die became a human being so he could lay down his life for his people. So in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the glory that Jesus had that was rightfully his from eternity past is now given to him as the God-man. We need to remember that. We need to remember who we're talking about, the preexistent, the eternal one, the son of God, before we explore what he's done. We've got to remember who he is. So if your Bible isn't open to Acts 2, please turn there. We're going to be looking at this chapter. It's the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has died. And Peter reminds his listeners that they have rejected the Messiah. They crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But that's not the end. Look at verse 24. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus Christ was resurrected physically and bodily to a new and different kind of body. It wasn't like his old body. The old body was ruled by disease, decay, and death. It wasn't like the other other resurrections in the Bible. You think of all the other people who have been raised from the dead. All of them had to die a second time. When they were resurrected, it was only a temporary extension of life. Lazarus, he died and then was raised by Jesus Christ. But then many years later, he died again and had a second funeral. But the resurrection of Jesus is different. It's a different kind of body. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So Jesus, in his resurrected body, has this imperishable body that's raised in glory and power, a body that is built to last. And it was a physical body. Do you remember? After he rose from the dead, he met with his disciples. He ate fish. He had a meal with them. They could put... His, they could put their hands in the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. It was a physical body. Verse 24 says, Not possible. Not possible. It was impossible for death to hold or to control or to have dominion over Jesus. Why was it not possible? Why was it impossible? Well, because of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the all powerful creator and Lord. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Nothing, not even death, is more powerful than God. But it's impossible not just because of who Jesus is, but what he has done. Jesus, through his ministry, his life and death, he fulfilled all righteousness. He was perfect as his heavenly father was perfect. So at the end of the day, he earned Eternal life. And in his Pentecost sermon, Peter takes the time to explain that this resurrected Christ, this risen Christ, didn't simply come out of nowhere. It wasn't this random historical event. He goes to great pains to show that all redemptive history prepares for and converges upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why it's important, church, for us to know the Old Testament promises so we know how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. Skipping over the old and jumping straight to the new is like starting a mystery novel two-thirds of the way through. You're going to be missing a lot of stuff. Now, you can certainly start with the new if you're new to the faith, but you want to work your way to the old as soon as possible, as quickly as possible. Let's look at verse 25 to 27. For David, this is King David, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Passages like this, this one is quoted from Psalm chapter 16. They describe the life experience of King David. If you recall the biblical narrative, you know that King Saul, during the last couple years of his life, spent a lot of time chasing after, hunting down, trying to kill David so that he could stop him from being the next king of Israel. And King Saul got really close. In fact, there were times that David was inches from death. But the Lord rescued David out of all those trials, all, the, all those tribulations. And passages like this in Psalm 16 need to be read within the context of God's promises, the promises that guarantee and undergird the hopes of God, God's people. So when David says, I will dwell in hope, it's not some empty hope, it's not some vain hope, some wishful thinking kind of hope. No, it's rooted in God and his character and his promises. For instance, remember, the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. This, this would have come later on in his kingship, but God basically tells David, hey, one day I'm gonna raise up a future offspring. He's going to occupy your throne and he's gonna rule and live forever and ever as king. And this future king who will rule forever formed such a core part of Israel's identity that it was, it was central to who they were, that it was repeated over and over again in places like Psalm 132, verse 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. That's the promises of God and they're going to be fulfilled. But there's a problem. If you look at verse 29 in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David might have gotten some temporary relief from death. Saul was chasing him around, and the Lord delivered him. But at some point in time, he died. He was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And his body, of course, saw corruption. It disintegrated. But the bigger problem is that the line of Davidic kings was broken. The Davidic monarchy started off really promising, but then it entered this downward spiral of disobedience and disaster that eventually ended in exile. The whole country was exiled. There was a loss of everything, of the land, of temple, and, of course, the kingship, the the line of kings was broken and brought to an end. And yet the question still remained how would verse 27 be fulfilled? How would God or God's king achieve this victory over the grave, this victory over corruption? Let's look at verse 31 and 32. He, this is again David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, someone is coming whose life would not end in death, but rather end with resurrection life, new creation life, and that would prove that he is the Messiah, God's Savior. So, does the resurrection matter? Boltman says the resurrection didn't happen. You can pretend that it didn't, but it didn't happen, so it doesn't really matter. But if the resurrection didn't happen, we'd have to cut out the last half of the Apostles' Creed, right? It would be completely irrelevant. There's no resurrection, no ascension, no future return of Jesus Christ. And of course, there's no Holy Spirit that's poured out, no building of the church, no no forgiveness of our sins, and no future resurrection for us. If there's no resurrection, think about it now. That means sin and death still have Jesus Christ pinned in the grave. And they still have dominion over Jesus Christ. And death is the ultimate meaning to life. Life just ends in death and that's it. If there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's indulge in every single physical pleasure we can think of because at the end of the day, we're all going to die anyways. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christian faith. So our faith hinges on the resurrection, but did it really happen? Or is it this myth that Boltmann claims it to be? Well, there's many reasons the, we can believe that the resurrection actually happened, an actual historical event, but let me, leave you with, let me give you three. Number one, we know the resurrection happened because God's word is trustworthy and authoritative, and it's recorded the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, preserved it to this day. God is a speaking God. When he speaks, he doesn't lie. And every time he speaks, he tells the truth. The scriptures record hundreds of eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. And the four gospel accounts give us detailed eyewitness testimonies on the resurrection of Jesus. One or two people might suffer a hallucination, but not hundreds of people. These are hundreds of people who saw the risen Lord. Number two, Historical evidence confirms the resurrection. It's a fact that Jesus died. The Romans, they were experts in execution, so they made sure their, their criminals died. And it's a fact that the tomb was empty. But how do you explain the empty tomb? Did the Jews and Romans take it, take the body, steal the body? Well, we know they didn't take it because they would have loved to get their hands on the body of Jesus. Pull out the body of the dead Savior, the dead Messiah, and show all the Christians hey, you guys, Jesus was a fake. He was a poser. He's still dead. Don't believe in him. Well, they couldn't do that because there was no body to produce. And the disciples didn't steal him either. They saw the resurrected Lord, and they proclaimed Him. They suffered for Him, and then they died for Him. People don't willingly, knowingly die for what they know to be a lie. And number three, the quality of the New Testament manuscripts. The New Testament manuscripts that have recorded the resurrection for us are are dated to the first first and second century AD. This would have been within a single generation of the actual events Boltman didn't do his homework. He wrote off the resurrection as a myth, but myths don't happen overnight. They take a long period of time to develop. The apostles who saw the resurrected Lord, they recorded it. They wrote it down, and it was confirmed by hundreds of eyewitness testimonies. And, then it was, and it's been passed down to us to this very day. If you want to learn more about the evidence for the resurrection, Check out the book, which recently became a movie called Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, uh, an atheist who became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection happened. It's a historical fact. But now I want to talk about three important things that God accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justification, vindication, and glorification justification, vindication, and glorification. Number one, resurrection. The resurrection proves justification. The word justification means declared righteous. That means Christ was declared righteous, declared right before God. Romans 4.25 says Jesus was delivered up on the cross for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For his atoning work to be effective, Jesus' work would have had to end in life, not death. The resurrection is proof that the Savior was justified. And that's good news for us because that means we're not united to a dead and unjustified Savior, but a living and justified Savior. Thank God that my justification, our justification, doesn't depend on our moral record, but on His. Wayne Grudem writes, there was no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, no more guilt or liability to punishment. All had been completely paid for, and no guilt remained. It was a declaration of not guilty. And that takes us right into the second thing that God accomplished. Resurrection is vindication. Resurrection is vindication. The Jewish and Roman courts handed down a guilty verdict on Jesus Christ and sentenced him to death like a common criminal before a watching world. But sometimes there's more than meets the eye. Sports referees have this powerful tool called instant replay. The receiver catches the ball. Is it a touchdown or was he out? They're not sure, they pull up the video footage. You got multiple cameras, multiple angles. They zoom in real close. They slow it down frame by frame to see what really happened. And sometimes a call is overturned. God saw that guilty verdict that was handed down onto Jesus Christ. But upon further review, he overturned that guilty verdict and showed Christ's true identity. Burkhoff writes, He who made God to be sin for us is the one who personally knew no sin. He who became accursed for our sake is the blessed of the Father. He who on the cross was the forsaken of God is the Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. The rejected of the earth is the crowned one of heaven. The resurrection is therefore the evidence of Christ's sonship. The seed of David, according to the flesh, is declared by the resurrection to be the Son of God with power the resurrection. In the resurrection, God vindicated Jesus Christ, showing the watching world his true identity, that that Jesus Christ had no sin, that he is the crowned one of heaven, that he is the son of God with power. And third, resurrection is glorification. At the resurrection, God highly exalted Jesus Christ and gave him the name that is above every single name. His life didn't terminate on the cross and burial and tomb. Jesus Christ's life ends with eternal life and glorification. And that's good news because that's our destiny also. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And in light of Christ's resurrection and our guaranteed future resurrection through our union with him, that gives a meaning and purpose to everything we do. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15:58, reminding people his audience, that Christ rose and we will rise with him. He reminds them to be steadfast, to be immovable, to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. What threatens your joy? What threatens to shake you? What kind of trial or difficulty or loss or pain are you going through? Well, in Christ, we experience Resurrection life, true resurrection life that David could only see and hope for in the distant future. In what ways are you discouraged by the frailties and weaknesses of our mortal flesh, of our human bodies? How are you discouraged by the fact that we're all aging, we're all dying? Maybe this isn't, maybe those young folks out there don't feel that way, they feel invincible, but one day you will feel it. You'll feel that, hey, your, your eyesight's going, your hearing's going, your hair's going, your strength is going. But in Christ, we're guaranteed a new and indestructible, permanent body built to last. And that is our future hope. Amen. And that's not all. After Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, he ascended into, into heaven. The ascension of Jesus Christ is his visible ascent from earth to heaven in his human body. Let me back up for just a sec. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is fully God, the Son of God. That means he's everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. But the God-man, Jesus Christ, has a human body. That means he's only in one place at one time. You read the Gospels. Jesus had to walk to get places. I mean, just think about it. Isn't that mind-boggling that God had to walk to get from point A to point B? He wasn't already at point B when he started off at point A. And in the ascension, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus, in his human body, in his human form, ascended into heaven. That's Acts chapter 1. Some of you might be wondering, like the disciples, wouldn't it be better if Jesus was still here? Wouldn't that be awesome? We could hear him preach. We wouldn't have to hear these guys. Like, I mean, I, you know, like Tim maybe and Leo, this Alex guy might be okay, but wouldn't it be great if we could hear Jesus, <laughs> Jesus preach, right? Wouldn't it be great if we could just sit at his feet, be discipled by Jesus himself? Why is it better that Christ ascend into heaven? Well, there's a common saying in real estate, location, location, location. It matters where Jesus is. R.C. Sproul writes, it has to do with going not to heaven in general, but to the throne of God in particular. Jesus' work of atonement is finished. He therefore goes up to heaven and sits at the place of cosmic authority beside God the Father. Jesus reigns exalted as cosmic king with a unique position in the kingdom of God. No one else ascends into heaven like this. Let me give you four reasons why Jesus has to ascend. Number one, Jesus has to return to his Father. In John 16, Jesus explains to his disciples that he came from the Father into the world, and now he is leaving the world to go back to his Father. Jesus is returning home to be with his Father where he came from. Number two, Jesus has to serve as high priest for us. Jesus ministers in the holy places in the true tabernacle, which is heaven. We know from the Old Testament there was earthly tabernacles, right? And the earthly temple. But these were a copy and shadow of the true heavenly reality. Because God dwells in heaven. That's his place. That's his home. And that's where Christ needs to serve as our high priest. So when Jesus died and said, It is finished. We don't have to wonder if God got the memo. Jesus Christ right now, because he has ascended, he is with the Father, face to face, presenting his finished work of atonement to the Father as our perfect and ultimate high priest. And number three, Jesus has to pour out the Spirit on the church. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The day of Pentecost, right? Spirit poured out, tongues of fire, wind, the the apostles speaking in tongues. The hope of Moses in Numbers 11, when Moses said, I wish all God's people were prophets and had the Spirit. The promise of Joel 2 where God says he will pour out his Spirit in all flesh, these things are fulfilled in the resurrected and ascended Christ. Church, this means we live in the age of the Spirit, something that the Old Testament saints could only dream about. That means we as New Testament believers, all of us who belong to Jesus Christ, we have the Spirit of God indwelling within us. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus for his ministry that gave, that empowered Jesus to serve with love, to work miracles, to speak words of truth in life. The same Spirit at work in Jesus is the same Spirit at work in us. So church, let us be bold in asking for the Spirit's power and presence. Let us pray continually to be filled with the Spirit. Let us hunger for more and more of the Spirit's presence and power and work in us. And number four, Jesus has to prepare a place for us. That's why he had to ascend. In John 14, Jesus tells his his disciples that he goes before them into heaven to prepare a place for them. He is our forerunner who goes before before us. And because we're united to Jesus Christ by faith, what happened to Jesus happens to us. As Jesus died, rose, and ascended, we die to sin. We live to God, and we will ascend and meet with Christ one day. We've looked at the resurrection of Christ, his ascension. Now we're going to turn our attention to the session of Christ. Session means seated at the right hand of the Father where Christ rules as the head of the church and Lord of creation. Let's look at verse 34 through 36. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David, he died, was buried, his body decayed. He never ascended into heaven. So he was clearly looking beyond himself. The Lord said to my Lord, this phrase is a quote directly from Psalm 110. The first Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, refers to Yahweh. I am who I am, the God of the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3, the God of deliverance. The second Lord simply, the second Lord, my Lord, refers to Lord or my master. The interesting mystery is who is this second divine figure whom David calls my Lord? David is king in Israel, there's no one higher than David than God himself, but there's Two figures. There's Yahweh, and then there's My Lord. There's a, what we learn is that there's a special seat reserved at the right hand of Yahweh for the person referred to as My Lord. If you've ever been on a 12-hour international flight, you know that the first five hours are pretty fun. You watch the movie, you eat the meal, you explore the plane. It's the, it's the seven hours after that that are really a bear. You want to go to sleep, but the chair is uncomfortable, it's cramped, it doesn't lean back. You are trying not to break that 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's reclining seat up in first class. You want to sit down in those nice recliners, but they've been assigned, they've been reserved for people who probably paid three times as much as you did. But those, that's reserved seating the seat at the right hand of God Almighty is reserved for one person. And that's the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. Christ ascends into the heavens to sit at the right hand of the Father in that seat, proving that he is the Messiah. The crucified one, the humiliated one, the one that was put to death and shamed for us is now Lord and Christ that's why Jesus can say in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is seated at the right hand of the Father where his enemies are being made his footstool. And it's, and it's at the right hand of the Father where Christ carries out his ministry of intercession, where he prays for us. Isn't that amazing to think that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father praying for us as his people, the people that he purchased with his own blood, So we can have confidence that there's no condemnation because our high priest is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then Hebrews 7.25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them he saves his people to the uttermost and we can know that our salvation is secure and complete because of the one who secured and completed it and that's a great comfort to us because not only is Christ presenting his completed sacrifice to the father there's no more condemnation we know that if God has met that biggest need of ours he will meet every other need for his people Every other need. Jesus prays according to the perfect will of God the Father, and his prayers are always answered. And that's a comfort because our prayers are often so imperfect and incomplete. Louis Burkhoff writes, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. That's what your Savior is doing for you here and now. So church, Christ died, he rose, he ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that demands a response. Look at verse 37 and 38. <clears throat> now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive The gift of the Holy Spirit. The most important question any of us must face is how will we respond to the risen and ascended Christ? Is he your risen and ascended Christ? If you're not a believer here, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming to learn about the Savior that we love so much. The risen and ascended Christ, he's calling you even today, even now, to repent and be baptized in his name for your forgiveness. He is the living water. He is the bread of life who has met your deepest and greatest need, the need for for you to be forgiven, the need for you to be changed. Will you come to the Savior today if you don't know him? Come to him even today, even now. Amen.